Well, we'll hear argument now on number 95-728, Warner Jenkinson Company, Inc. versus Hilton Davis Chemical Company. Mr. Toronto. Violates two aspects of the fundamental principle that it is up to the patentee, through its own drafting and through the available PTO processes, to define its patent boundaries before the patent issues, not later in an infringement action. Our narrower point is that once Hilton Davis accepted, rather than appealed from, the PTO's demand that it write the specific pH limit into the patent, that limit became binding under this court's doctrine of prosecution history or file wrapper estoppel. Factual inquiry, Mr. Toronto. What is pH? The, the pH is a measure of the acidity of a solution, which ordinarily like, stands for the potential of hydrogen, so that wine would be very acidic, water not at all, etc. But, but the lower the pH, the higher the acidity? Yes. It, it's, so it's, that it's upside kind of down that way, yes. Um, this court's doctrine of prosecution history or file wrapper estoppel has always said, in a way unaffected by Graver Tank, that there should be no second guessing of the reason for the examiner's demand for a limit once the patentee has accepted that demand and bypassed the appeal. That principle states a critical limit on any otherwise available doctrine of equivalence and itself requires reversal here. Does that, does that raise, oh, Go ahead. does that place you in the following odd position? I may not understand your position, so let me raise it now. Uh, your, sort of your fallback position is that the, uh, the, the doctrine ought to apply only in a case uh, in which the, the so-called point of equivalence was within the claim that was actually made, but which for some reason would not have been enforceable. The claim was for whatever reason too broad. Uh, uh, and yet, if, if I understand you correctly, and that's, that's what your position would be, then the person who claims too much, but invalidly, is in a better position than the person who, before the patent examiner, gives up more than he has to because the patent office uh, indicates that uh, without such a concession they won't give their approval. And doesn't that present a sort of an anomalous position that the person who goes the whole hog and more is going to end up in a better position than the individual who concedes too much uh, simply to get the patent through? Well, I, I think that um, the, the fundamental point is that it's in the PTO that the process of negotiating about proper breadth both can and does take place. If someone comes in as applicants have an um, inherent incentive to do and seek broader coverage because it gives them greater rights and more opportunity to exclude the world from, from something, um, then a process takes place. In most cases, the examiner will reject an initial application, and there is a discussion about why. Here, there were, I think, two or three rejections of the initial application, basically because of the obviousness of the filtering of these guys. Mm -hmm. But then, as I think is, is indicated at pages 103 and 107 of the Joint Appendix, as Hilton Davis's um, description of its interview with the examiner shows. It, Hilton Davis went into the examiner and the examiner said, okay, now I'm persuaded that if your pH is above nine, it won't be obvious anymore. But it also, he, he also said, 
make sure the pH is above 6. And he pointed specifically to the specification, the part of the long disclosure that says, here's where we say what we know works. So it is, in fact, apparent in this record why the examiner said 6 as the lower limit. And the Federal Circuit just missed that. Now, it, it, I think, would generally be true that a patentee, I'm not sure I understood exactly the... the well, I, I think it's still the case, accepting everything you say, as, as I understand your position, it's still the case that when the PTO is, is perhaps asleep at the switch uh, and it lets a claim uh, through which, in fact, is broader than would ultimately prevail, that is the one case in which, in your fallback position, uh, the, the, the doctrine of substantial equivalence would be recognized. Is that correct? Well, that's right. If yeah. the, the, the narrower ground, the prosecution history estoppel ground, um, in, in this case applies only where there is a rejection, a rejection of a broader claim or a claim that then introduces a limit and the um, patent applicant has bypassed the appeal mechanism for challenging that. There, there are other situations where there's a potential estoppel without a rejection and amendment where the applicant says something to put the world on notice that he interprets his claim in a particular way. That's not not this case. If the PTO is, as you say, asleep at the And that wouldn't be switch, good enough for you. I mean, on your fallback position, uh, that it would not be recognized in that case. Equivalence would not well, be it, recognized it, it, in that case. I, I mean, I, I think... On your view, isn't that correct? That equivalence would not be recognized. That's right. that, well, that would be okay for, yeah. for, my, for my position. Sure. Right. Um, the, this, this particular um, case involves an example of a specific demand for a limit written into the patent that the applicant accepted. And, the, and there's a good reason for Congress's having insisted that the right way to challenge those limits is through the appeal mechanism. One reason is that it makes sense to assume that the PTO examiner, in fact, had a good reason if the applicant bypasses the appeal. But there are also two important structural advantages. One is that disputes about the proper flexibility or clarity or, or breadth of the patent are resolved before it's issued. And the second is that in the internal appeal mechanism, the examiner participates. And so the PTO can clarify whether, can clarify the reasons for the rejection. The alternative is that in the infringement action where the PTO is a complete stranger, PTO isn't there, the court and the parties are left to speculate. And this is a Rondo, good... You, you said, I, maybe I have it wrong, that the PTO made a mistake of fact as to the six and above. I'm, I'm sorry. That, so what you're saying about the, when, when the PTO makes it precise, that's it, and you can't have any doctrine of equivalence. But wasn't there a difference between requiring nine and under and the six? I thought it was the prior art that was the blockage to going above nine. Right. There, there are different reasons for, 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 I don't think the PTO made a mistake of fact at all. I think the PTO got it No, exactly you right. said the Federal Circuit, oh, the Federal Circuit. Th thinking that six had nothing to do with the PTO's concern. But if the PTO did have a concern and insisted on the number six being put in, approximately six, uh, that concern was different than that the prior art ruled out a patent for a number higher than nine. Yeah, yes, there are two different reasons. There's one reason for insisting that, they, that the patent um, come down no lower than nine, and another reason for insisting that it, that it come down no lower than six. Prior art was oh, higher than Higher than six. For, prior art was the reason to say exclude everything above nine. 
another equally important reason why the patent would have been invalid if it had been below six is that a claim may not be broader than the specification discloses that the process works. You look at this specification in which Hilton Davis laid out all the experiments it had done. Nowhere does it show how to make its process work. Well, what would happen if this is a hypothetical case, not this case? The inventor says below six, it works, but not very well. You get a lot of foaming, and, and the result isn't quite as good. Uh, you really shouldn't be playing around below six, so you're not going to get a very good result. Uh, what should the patent disclose in, in that case? And, and let's presume further that an infringer uh, still saves money if he uses the process under an alleged infringer. It still saves money if he goes under six rather than does the salting method. It's much better than salting, but it isn't as good as six and nine. Right. I, I think that, as you say, that would be a hypothetical since as, as the inventor here testifies... But this, testifies, is, this, is, this is a hypothetical. Right. It, it, it partly depends on what the purpose of the process is. If the purpose of the process is not just to filter a little bit of solution, but is, as the inventor testified here, the whole purpose is to create an economical way of doing it in industrial quantities, then foaming problems would simply not serve that, I mean, would defeat that purpose. And at that point, the, 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 the patent wouldn't be useful for that purpose. But what the examiner and the applicant would be discussing in that situation is whether the utility requirement of the statute is met in those conditions. And that would, I, I don't know how exactly that, an, that discussion would come out, but our point is that that's the proper place for the discussion. So is that, is that a the, proper use of purpose? I mean, you, you mean there are two different purposes if one purpose is to filter efficiently and another purpose is to filter inefficiently? Do you get a separate patent for filtering inefficiently? No, I, Both I patents have, the, have the, the same purpose, namely of filtering? Right. I was, I guess, using, using the, the, the term purpose there in, in the, the sense of uh, function from the language of function way result that has often been used as the touchstone for equivalence analysis. Yeah, I I mean that. You you think that for for equivalence analysis it it would make a difference whether... Well, I'm I'm in the position of of being uncertain exactly what does make a difference. I mean, the the function way result test has often been said, including by Judge Hand, is just another way of stating the problem. I think it is right that every one of the judges in the Federal Circuit indicated that the function way result test was not a terribly satisfactory way to proceed. And the but, but if you don't have the equivalence doctrine, then in the example that you and I have just discussed, you have to do one of two things. Limit your uh, patent to the most efficient uh, range, uh, or B, uh, and, and suffer infringers, and, and suffer alleged infringers or be expand the patent to an inefficient zone. Right, right. And, 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 I, and it seems to me the equivalence doctrine protects against that. Well, I, I, then, then let, me, let me try to, try to answer that. What I, what I meant to say is that there wouldn't be a bar on getting the extra range just because it's inefficient. The question w- would be whether the requirements for patentability are met and, and there are lots of patents that are not either improvements over prior things or particularly efficient, but are novel and non-obvious and useful in the sense of the statute. So efficiency is not a requirement. If Hilton Davis had, in fact, thought that, it, that its process worked, that it actually performed the function for which it was trying to, to get the patent, it surely would have written its claim to include that. By bypassing... Mr. Trump... 
on your fallback position where you're talking about the PTO insisting on a limit, how, how much kind of analogy to legislative history are we letting ourselves in for there? Is it always perfectly clear why the PTO does what it does? No, I think not, and I think that's, that's a principal reason why our position is that looking at behind the insistence on a limit for the reason for that insistence is not a good idea in an infringement action because it often will not be clear. Well, can you always find in, in the PTO history the insistence on a limit? Supposing a limit is ultimately accepted by the, the patent uh, applicant, uh, can you always find that that was as a result of the insistence of the PTO? I, I think always will, would be too strong. Um, th there will be many, many cases in which the applicant, I mean, you, you have the original application. The examiner says, I reject it for the following reasons, and writes an explanation. So that the task of interpreting those documents to see not what the reason for the rejection is, but that there was a demand in order to obtain the patent for a certain limit to be to be placed in. That is something that, um, like other kinds of textual interpretation, sometimes will generate disputes, but very often will not, as here it, it, it did not. It's another thing entirely to look behind. Once you've concluded the PTO said there must be this lower limit, there's no dispute about that, to then second-guess whether the PTO should have insisted on that limit by re-examining the reasons. And what happens, I think, is, is when you don't have the PTO there as a party, which you would in the uh, internal appeal, in the infringement action, you have mistakes being made. The Federal Circuit here simply ignored. Mr. Trotter, perhaps I should ask your opponent this rather than you, but if, the, if it was essential that there be a lower limit on the pH, uh, how can it be that the injunction takes, uh, takes away the lower limit entirely? Um, if I read it correctly. Right. It, it, it does, and we've scratched our heads about that as well. Um, one of the, I, I think what happened as a factual matter is that independently of Hilton Davis, Warner Jenkinson, before it even learned of, of the patent, um, figured out how to do this process with a different chemistry that made it able to use the lower pH. Um, at the time, Hilton Davis... See, the puzzling thing about it is the Court of Appeals seems to think 5.0 is equivalent to 6.0 that it makes no scientific makes no. difference. And, but then the district court seemed to think 0, 0.0 would also be equivalent. Is that a fair reading of the, of the fact they granted that relief? I think that is a fair reading of what the district court, of what the district court did, yes. Now, our broader point is that, in fact, the um, erasing of a limit that was imposed in the PTO after internal correction mechanisms are bypassed is really only the most extreme application of the Federal Circuit's broad doctrine of equivalence, which suffers from the same basic problem. It broadly undermines the statute's fundamental decision that it is in the PTO that patentees are supposed to define their asserted inventions with any needed breadth and flexibility of language to be negotiated there so that the resulting patent has boundaries that have been approved by the PTO and that give reliable notice of the monopolized territory. What does that do to, to Graver and to the cases that it relied on going way back into the 19th century? Well, let me, let me talk about, about Graver in, in, in particular. I think that the principle of the statute can be summarized as a principle of disclosure through approved claims. Graver did not depart from the basic requirement of disclosure, that somebody sitting down, other inventors trying to work in the same field, competitors, by reading the documents, 
including with, with the, the knowledge of uh, skilled people who understand the terms, but by reading the documents can determine where the boundaries are. Because in Graver, there was actual disclosure, not in the remaining valid claim, but both in the broader invalid claim and in the specification of what the defendant was doing. There was no problem there either of bypassing the PTO process of approval or of not disclosing some kind of equivalent later determined in court to be scientifically unimportant in exchange. That, it seems to us, is the basic rule that ought to apply in limiting any doctrine of equivalence. Before Graver, I think it is, it is right to say that with one arguable exception, this court had not expanded any patent claims for, I mean, in this century, and that Graver was well recognized at the time as a an anomaly in that situation. The court came, entertained the notion only several years before in the exhibit supply case of um, simply repudiating the doctrine as fundamentally incompatible with the notion of a claiming system. What Graver um, does say is that, um, at least on its facts, that there was a kind of, I guess Graver doesn't say this, but on its facts, there was a kind of technical impediment to a proper claim. When you begin to talk about a case on its facts, right. that always suggests that you either want to limit it or overrule it. Yes, I, I, think, I think that the, the portion of, of Graver that needn't be touched um, at all, and that is that our position doesn't affect at all, is the requirement that if there is going to be an equivalent so as to expand patent scope beyond the understandable meaning of the claims, then it can't go beyond what is disclosed. You're talking about the manganese and the in disclosure in, in Graver? The manganese, yes, right. That's Which, of course, would have made the patent invalid if it had been exposed, because it was part of the prior art. Um, well, that, that wasn't apparently part of what was in issue in this, in this court at, at the time. In other words, they never answered Justice Douglas. R- right, and then the case did continue for a, a dozen years where that question was, was raised again. But the basic requirement that the patent itself somewhere must disclose the equivalent is entirely consistent well, with why, why is it that Graver should be limited? Uh, I mean, it's a decision of this court. Uh, what, are, what are the reasons why any departure from it at all should take place? Well, I, I don't think that a departure from it needs to take place depending on how broadly one reads it. Graver is written, I think, in such a way as to focus on a host of facts that, on the equities there, seem to make a compelling case for finding infringement. The critical facts, we suggest, and therefore a perfectly um, familiar way of reading the case, is as limited to the situation where the patent itself disclosed the equivalent. Now, as for a broader reading, Our basic position is that a broader reading is inappropriate um, because it would fundamentally repudiate the long line of authority in which this court said the claims define the reliable boundaries of the patent monopoly. And if it's an undisclosed equivalent, an undisclosed extension of the patent, something that a reader couldn't determine, only an experimenter could determine, then it runs smack into the very notion of invention that this court was, was very explicit about in the U.S. industrial chemicals case, which we discussed in our reply brief, and this court relied on several times in Markman, where the court said it doesn't matter if all the scientists agree that a small change would not make a scientific difference. It doesn't even matter if the patentee knew 
that that small change would not make a scientific difference. The patentee didn't say so, and it's only what the patent asserts as the invention that's the protected. That was that, so, but that was decided several years before Graver. Right, but, but Graver is entirely consistent with that, and what we're suggesting is that Graver is properly read as consistent with that, rather than a broader version, which would say that every um, other inventor, every competitor, when reading the patent, has not only to understand its terms, to know where the boundary lines are, but also has to undertake experiments to see whether a change, a ten-factor change of the pH from six down to five, would change the functioning of the process. So if the, if the council cannot foresee every possible circumstance in which this invention could be used, and a new circumstance arises, one that the patent office had thought it wouldn't work, they didn't think a cylindrical tank would work on mountaintops, or that this would work at a, low, at a, high, at a low pH, and they were wrong. The invention works at that low pH or on the mountaintop. Patentee is just out of luck. Well, the How can counsel foresee everything? Well, counsel can't, can't foresee everything, but the patentees themselves have a number of protections. One is they can amend their um, or file continuing applications while the original application is pending if they learn more doing the experiments. Section 102 of the statute says to patentees, even if you've gotten your patent, you basically have a one-year risk-free period to do more experimenting. Figure out if you should expand it. And during that one year, your patent won't be used as essentially prior art against you. You can then go back, and if you've done something new, find, um, write, write a new patent. And of course, you have um, the reissue process, which Congress wrote specifically for the purpose of saying, if you made a mistake when you wrote your original patent, come back and broaden it, but on a subject to certain conditions. Two years and, inter and others who are using the same thing have intervening rights protection. What the doctrinal equivalence does in its broad form is to say that all patents are subject in court redefinition through scientific testimony, and that fundamentally defeats the, the um, clear notice function of the claiming system. If I may reserve the balance of my time. Very well, Mr. Toronto. Uh, Mr. Wallace, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. In last April's decision in Markman against Westview, uh, this court recognized that the scope of protection afforded by a patent grant is defined by the claim or claims. Yet, in the Graver Tank decision in 1950, the court rightly noted that outright duplication of a patented invention is rare. So the difficulty that the courts have faced over the years is how to protect the substance of the claims against misappropriation through trivial or colorable or insubstantial uh, substitutions, uh, however you want to call them, without depriving the public of the notice to which it's entitled and without enlarging the claims in the course of litigation. That is the dilemma. Uh, and it, it, I think it's helpful also to think of it in terms of the statutory policies. How can inventors be given adequate incentive to make the disclosures under the patent system that contribute to the advancement of science and technology? Well, if, if, we, if we assume, Mr. Wallace, that there should be a doctrine of equivalence and that the PH5 uh, 
procedure here probably should qualify under it. What should be the division of function between the judge and the jury? What, what should have happened here in the trial court, in your view? Well, we, we uh, spoke uh, in, in a very qualified way in only one footnote of our brief, footnote three to that, because the Markman decision was pending before the court at the time we filed, and we felt that that would shed considerable light on it. And in light of Markman, uh, which has now held that it is exclusively uh, within the province of the court uh, to interpret uh, patent claims so as to define, so as to define the patentee's rights against literal infringement, it really would be incongruous to adopt a different rule uh, to uh, define the rights against non-literal infringement. To the extent that this is, and we think it is to a great extent, a matter of interpreting the, the scope of the claims, it is similarly, in our view, a matter uh, for the judge to do. This may what is left then for the jury in coming to the ultimate conclusion of infringement? I don't see that anything is left. In some cases, there will not be anything left for the jury, just as was recognized in Markman if the judge... Well, and, and on the reasoning of Markman, are we in a position to take from the jury the ultimate, uh, the, the, the ultimate issue? Well... I should have thought not. It depends on what is factually disputed, Mr. Justice. Um, if, for example, to, to, to cite a very simple example, the judge decides based on evidence as to the proper scope of protection uh, afforded by this claim that um, uh, uh, a pH level of 5 uh, would be an insubstantial difference that uh, is within the scope of protection, but a pH level of four would require the opposite conclusion. And there were a factual dispute about what uh, uh, the defendant actually did or the extent to which it did one or the other, um, that, of course, would be something to be resolved by the jury. The jury would still have to decide whether the conduct engaged in by uh, the defendant infringed upon the scope of protection as defined by the judge. But in a case in which there was no question, let's say, about the pH level, in fact, of, of the uh, alleged infringer's uh, process, then the jury verdict would, would be a pure formality. That would be uh, true under Markman with respect to literal infringement. And, and in also, this, in this case, then, the, the court should have or could have instructed the jury, ladies and gentlemen, the jury, I instruct you as a matter of law that the process when uh, used at level five is within the scope of the patent under the equivalence doctrine. That, that is, in our view, a determination for the court to make in defining the scope of protection of that element of uh, the patent claim. Mr. Wallace, may I just clarify one thing, because what you've said is substantially different from what I gathered from your footnote, and it is different from what... Uh, Judges Plager and Louis said, they said, the reason this doesn't go to the jury is because it's equitable. I understand you to be saying, no, you recognize that the color of the claim does, depends on the relief, and so, but you're saying it's like defining the claim, therefore, even though the case is entirely legal, say we just want damages, no injunction, the case is entirely legal, 
but it goes to the judge. You are disallowing what was the suggestion of this note, that it's somehow the legal law-equity divide that places this in the judge's bailiwick. I think that the equitable origins of uh, the uh, uh, doctrine of equivalence in affording a, a remedy, the equitable nature of it, uh, is relevant. But that I don't follow, Mr. Wallace, because as I understand, this was a court-made doctrine uh, developed for cases, could be applied in a case where injunctive relief was sought, could be applied where legal relief was sought. And that is correct. It wasn't an equitable remedy to relieve the rigors of the harsh common law system. It was the way common law courts operate. And they had a doctrine and they applied it. Well, we recognize that the doctrine has been applied in what used to be considered common law causes of action for damages for infringement. And which in is authority, I take it, is authority for the fact that it always was. And, and uh, these are the reasons why I stated our position the way I did, that, that this is largely a matter of claim interpretation, which is the first thing we said in that footnote. Uh, we also mentioned uh, uh, the uh, equitable uh, nature of the doctrine, but we're not saying that when there is a factual dispute about what the alleged infringer did, that that is not a matter for the judge. May I ask this question, Mr. Wallace? What is the government's position with regard to, assuming the judge is going to make the decision now, does the equivalence have to have been uh, apparent to a person skilled in the art at the time the patent issued or at the time of trial? We, our position is at the time of infringement, not at the, not at the time of trial, but not at the time that not the at the time the patent issued either. If it was not apparent at the time of the patent issued, it would nevertheless to be, become equivalent by later, because of later uh, learning. Because uh, uh, that's right. Uh, it, it could still be just an insubstantial substitution. We give an example in our so the, the infringement action, say you have continuing development, it might be that at one time five would be equivalent, a few years later four might be equivalent, and today uh, you would have no lower limit. That could very well develop. Well, uh, the, the, the utility of the doctrine is uh, whether somebody at the time of the alleged act uh, that infringes is misappropriating what uh, the patent has granted to the patentee to assure the commercial viability of his invention in return for disclosing it to the public. And uh, that depends on uh, what someone knowledgeable in the state of the art would recognize to be a substitution at the time uh, that the infringement occurs. Mr. Wallace, do I understand that the United States is attempting to persuade other nations to adopt something equivalent to the doctrine of equivalent? And if that's correct, what is the definition that the United States is recommending to the rest of the world? And how does it differ, if it does, from the Federal Circuit's decision no, here? I, uh, you know, in our negotiations, we've pointed to the doctrine as developed in this country, and so far as I'm aware, uh, have just said that something comparable as it would fit within your particular system uh, should uh, be recognized in order to afford the protection. And one of the amicus briefs in this case uh, 
the brief for uh, Chiron Corporation uh, cites a very recent decision in Japan, which for the first time recognized and applied a doctrine comparable to our doctrine of equivalence, but it's, it's very hard to equate our system that involves examination in the patent office with other systems which may not. I believe my time has expired. Thank you, Mr. Wallace. Mr. Schmidt, we'll hear from you. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I'd like to respond first to Mr. Toronto's argument that we cannot invoke the doctrine of equivalence in this case because the inventors intentionally surrendered pHs below 6. I think if we look at the record in this case, we find one peculiarity, although I don't think this Court has spoken on the question, the Federal Circuit has found that this doctrine of prosecution history estoppel, the intentional surrender of claim coverage, is a question of law normally. In this case, however, the parties agreed to submit that question to the jury. And an instruction was given to the jury on prosecution history estoppel. It appears on page 60 of the joint appendix. And it essentially asked the jury to consider the reasons why surrender was made if surrender were made. The finding of fact to be implied from the jury's verdict of infringement is that there was no such surrender. That fact having been established by the jury and now having been reviewed by the trial court and the post-trial motions and by the Federal Circuit, I suggest creates a very limited scope of review. Well, what precisely, Mr. Schmidt, was the question that the parties agreed to submit to the jury? Whether or not the doctrine of equivalence was applicable in this case because of surrender of patent claim coverage that had been made before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. And in the instruction that was given to the jury, the trial court defined what prosecution history estoppel was, that it precludes a patent owner from obtaining a claim construction through the application of the doctrine of equivalence that would resurrect subject matter surrendered during prosecution of a patent application. Well, I suppose we can still re reverse that if, there, if there's no substantial evidence to support it. But in this case, I think what it was incumbent upon Warner Jenkinson to show was that based upon the written record in the patent office, there was a clear showing that Hilton Davis had intended to, and in fact did, did surrender coverage below six. The only evidence we have in the written record of the patent office is that Hilton Davis was attempting to distinguish from the prior art that showed a pH above nine. There was no prior art that was before the patent office where Hilton Davis had to argue to show a pH below six. But the patent examiner demanded that, that they not go below six. There's, there's no evidence, Justice Scalia, that the patent examiner ever demanded that that limit be put in. In fact, there's no evidence why that limit was put in in the patent office record. Let me, let me give an example. Wasn't it true that the specifications described experiments within the range of below six? That's, that's correct. And none below six? It, it was silent on anything below six. Yes. That's correct. But there was no indication that the process would not work below six. I think 
there's a lot of case law that says that there is a presumption that the patentee, the inventors, are, in, are, are intending to claim as much as they possibly can. That's why when we have the doctrine of prosecution history estoppel, we require clear and convincing evidence to overcome if they, that. If they want to claim as much as they possibly can, they simply should have said zero to nine. They, they, they should have. Yeah. Had I written the claim today, knowing what I know, it would have been written differently. <laughs> and, and, and apparently, apparently the district judge agrees with you, because that's what the injunction requires, doesn't it? What, what we learned during the evidence in the case was, outside the written record of the patent office, was that the process would work all the way down to a pH of two. That evidence was submitted to overcome arguments that were made by Warner Jenkinson that there were these supposed tremendous foaming problems below six. What the inventor testified to was, yes, the process would foam, but it would still work to operate to purify the dye all the way down to two. And so based upon that, the judge entered the injunction. Does that mean that if some, other, some third party used a, a pH down to one or two, that he would also be an infringer under the doctrine of equivalence? We would have to then examine whether or not we have an insubstantial difference. Whether well, a pH you, you don't, according to this record. Isn't that clear? Well, and I think that's what the judge found in entering the injunction. So based upon the facts of this case, within the operation of this particular process, a pH of two is equivalent to a pH of six. Well, why, why didn't the patentee, Hilton Davis, here, uh, use the statutory scheme for a subsequent amendment of the scope of the patent, if that's the position it wanted to take? There is a statutory provision that enables a patent applicant who's given a patent to come back in uh, requesting an enlargement of the scope. Yes, Justice O'Connor, that's the reissue statute. Yes, and so if that isn't done, it seems to me that it makes the use of the doctrine of equivalence to cover something like that questionable. The statutory scheme for reissuance exists to correct defects in patents where the patent owner recognizes there, there's something defective in the patent, either because they have misstated something or they realize that they didn't claim as much as they had it in Well, that's this case. They, they now want to assert something they didn't claim, which is a pH below 6. But the difference in reissuance is it permits you to enlarge the scope of the claim within the two-year statutory right. period. The doctrine of equivalence operates on a different premise, and that is that you're not enlarging the scope of the claim. All you are doing is substituting equivalence for what you have literally claimed. I may provide an analogy. Synonyms. We have a word, the word car. We have synonyms to that word, automobile, motor car. If we substitute one for the other, we aren't enlarging the scope of the Yeah, but it's very different here where there's been a specified range of the pH, and uh, Hilton Davis wants to claim that uh, something that isn't within that scope is nonetheless protected. And uh, if we are to have the doctrine of equivalence, it says that we have the right to include within our patent not only that which we have expressly, literally claimed, but all those things which are equivalent because of insubstantial differences. In this case, there was the additional issue. But it's very hard to conclude that it's insubstantial when it's outside the limits that the patent owner has, has agreed to have. But I think that's the very reason that the doctrine of equivalence exists, so that the patent owner is not forced to only 
have as, as coverage and to be protected against what they have literally claimed. Mr. Schmidt, before yeah. we get by the, the, the argument prior to the equivalence argument, namely whether there was a waiver, you say that, there, that the record disclose, does not disclose that the examiner demanded uh, that six be the level? As a condition of the grant, yes. Uh, why don't you look at page 107 of the joint appendix, which is uh, the patentee's uh, record of interview. And it says the examiner stated that on presentation of such arguments, namely the arguments that, that had been made above showing uh, uh, four major points of difference, coupled with an amendment in Claim 1 inserting the pH range from 6 to 9 in accordance with the specification disclosure at page 12, and I gather the specification disclosure was the reason he picked 6, he would reconsider his rejection yes, as based on Booth. That's correct. And if we look at the rest of the record, we find the reason that the examiner was suggesting that was... He wasn't suggesting it. He said he, this is the only basis on which he said it, he would reconsider it. Namely, you insert a range from 6 to 9. And, and the only reason that we can learn from the record, the written record, for that type of amendment was to avoid pHs above 9 that were in the prior art. But what about the specification disclosure? Specification did, did disclose 6 and up, up to 9. But the so question here... That's what he was basing it on. And doesn't the patent have to comply with the specification? What, what, the, what the claim has to do is it has to enable a person of ordinary skill in the art to practice the invention. And what this, what we have here is the, the examiner suggesting the six be put in to be absolutely sure that that enablement uh, requirement was met. Well, you're saying he suggests it be put in. His only agreement to reconsider has, as one of its conditions, inserting the pH range from six to nine. I mean, you can call it a suggestion if you like. As long as you say he suggests that unless you do that, he won't reconsider it. But, but if we look at the rest of the written record in the case, we find that the only reason that any pH limitation was being put in was to avoid the prior art and to provide this enablement function. Well, the other side said there's another reason. That is that the specification has to comply with the, with the patent. Well, and the specification here was only six and above. I disagree with that premise. I, I think it's basic patent law that the claim can be broader than the specification. The question is... Have you taught in your patent enough to enable a person of ordinary skill in the art to practice the invention? If you teach them six will work, and if a person of ordinary skill in the art also knows that five will work, as they must in order to apply the doctrine of equivalence, then we have enablement. Well, whatever the reason was, at least he says it has to be from six to nine. Now, your argument is, well, he had no reason for the six. That's right. He had a reason for the nine, no reason for the six, and therefore we can disregard the six. That requires whoever's uh, conducting this to, uh, to not only see what he said, but, but, but go further back into the history and see the reasons for what he said. That's entirely correct. I don't like history. I'm, I'm not inclined to, uh, to want to go any, any further back than I have. But, but isn't it true there is a reason for the six, and that is, isn't the patent supposed to teach the, the person who wants to read it and figure out how this thing will work? Isn't there an implied representation in the patent that the, that the device will work? And if you didn't know whether it'll work below six or nine, you can't make that representation. And you didn't know. We know that because the doctrine of equivalence was applied in this case, that the person of ordinary skill in the well, but you didn't know it. Did you know it at that time or at the time of the infringement? When, do you, when does the doctrine of equivalence come into being? I, I agree with the government that the doctrine of equivalence should apply. I so you, wouldn't, you didn't necessarily know it at the time the patent issued? Not necessarily. 
In fact, you, if you had, you would have said you'd experimented at these lower levels, presumably. Yeah. For whatever reason, it wasn't in the patent. But, but you can answer Justice Stevens' question, yes, uh, that uh, you put in six because you knew it would work at that level, you weren't sure it would work below, and still not surrender your position. That's correct. Can, can, can you go back for a second to Justice O'Connor's question? Uh, and you were talking about synonyms. I'm trying to understand how the doctrine of equivalence works. Suppose that I uh, have invented uh, like five chemicals, A, B, C, D, E, and you put them together and it grows hair, for example. And, and, <laughs> and then, then sometime in, in the future, uh, 15 years from now, people discover a new chemical didn't even exist before. It's called X, and it does the same as A. And so they do the same thing, but they use X. And then I guess that's equivalent. And then I'm going to obviously say then they invent Y and then Z. And pretty soon, instead of A, B, C, D, and E, what we have are five totally new chemicals, didn't exist before, but still grows hair in the same way, same function, same... Uh, and now, now is that supposed to be equivalent? I think we apply the same test. All right, if that's so, you see, I think the lawyers on the other side are arguing, my goodness, we're supposed to advise clients and we have no idea how to do it because we read the patent uh, thing and we know with this doctrine people might discover all kinds of new chemicals in the future and we just don't know how to do it. And, and so what we're groping for is there then no limitation on this doctrine of equivalence? I mean, how do you prevent it from becoming so uncertain an element that it becomes impossible to advise the client? I think the way to answer that is to say that when the client asks for the advice, you take that point in time and ask, at that point in time, is A, B, C, D, and F equivalent to X? That you've, you've uh, oh. At the time the advice is being sought. Tomorrow it may change. But at least as of the point in time that we're talking about right now, what does the person of ordinary skill in the art know about these equivalents? Is there an insubstantial difference? I'd like to also respond to Mr. Uh, to my um, colleagues arguments about about being disclosed in the patent. Before you do that, can you just clarify your opening statement? Is it your view that ordinarily the question of the, um, the prior history and what that uh, precludes, that that is ordinarily a question for the judge, but it was just happenstance that the parties agreed that it would go to the jury? Because I thought that that was one question for this court to decide. If you're not disputing it, then I guess everybody agrees that prosecution history estoppel is for the court. Um, I think my point was that I couldn't find that this court had spoken on it. The Federal Circuit has and has said that it's a question of law, and that's the rule that we've always followed. But in this case, because it was submitted to the jury, then we treated it as a question. Right, but you, you don't dispute that the, the rule is um, prosecution uh, Prosecution history estoppel is a question for the court. Yes. Okay. But it's not an issue that we have to decide in this case. I don't believe so, no. And, and do you, would you concede that it was even within the question that we took? It, it does not appear to be. No, it doesn't. The question went more to the existence of the doctrine. Of it was a question about the substance of the doctrine. The, the requirement of being disclosed in the pact. First, the doctrine of equivalence is an objective um, inquiry. To require disclosure in the patent makes it into a subjective inquiry. What did the patentee know, rather than what did the person of ordinary skill in the art know? 
We also have a practical problem. So you think that there is no room within the doctrine for looking at the culpability of the alleged infringer? Oh, and that is the entire question, the culpability of the alleged infringer. What I think Mr. Toronto was getting at was, in order to have an equivalent, you must state it in the patent. And that's what I'm disagreeing with at this point. There are hundreds of thousands of issued patents that are still active, many more applications that have been filed, which cannot now be amended to put those types of equivalents in. You would be depriving people of many, many expectations that they would be protected for, for equivalence. On the other hand, there ought to be some reasonable limitation to its use so that it isn't uh, dredged up in every single infringement case and uh, as appears to be the case today. What, what I think Graver and some of its predecessors tell us, it, it's available for use in any case where there's no literal infringement. But there are limits. One of the limits we've talked about is prosecution history estoppel. There is another limit that you cannot claim equivalence that would cause you to read on, to run into the prior art, that is, to invalidate your patent. There are limitations inherent in the operation of the doctrine of equivalence itself. Only insubstantial changes qualify. I might analogize. Uh, insubstantial, you, you define as a, as a tenfold uh, reduction in the acidity. Yes. In the context of this process, that's true. I, I don't know. All right, let me that give an example. Substantial. Which I, I, that sounds substantial to me. Let me clarify with perhaps an example. Suppose um, a soft drink has a pH of 3. Water has a pH of 7. They're both equally applicable to, to crunch one's thirst, irrespective of their pH. Goldfish wouldn't thrive very well at a pH of 3 in, in the soft drink, but would in water. So in the context of what the application is, in the context of the invention, a pH of 5 or a pH of 6 may make no difference. In fact, here it didn't. In other contexts, a slight change in pH may make a lot but of difference. But pH was, was uh, central enough to the invention that it was specified. I mean, you know, when I'm drinking water or Coke, I don't specify what the pH is. But it was, it was central enough to the invention here that it was specified in the patent. Yes, and there were several reasons why the pH had some importance to this invention. First, it had to lie within the range that it would not destroy the membrane that was doing the filtering. So you could not get too acid or too alkaline. Secondly, the process has to operate within a certain range or else you end up with a product that is so acid a dye uh, or so al alkaline that it can't be used as a practical matter. So there are limits, and one of the limits is mine. There is also probably a lower, lower limit that, as the inventor testified, you wouldn't want to go below two because it would cause the membrane to be eaten up. I'm still a little worried about the army of experts, possibly in a chemical case or biotechnology, on either side arguing that two substances that are made up really of very different chemicals are in fact made up of chemicals that do the equivalent thing and at some period of time would have been obvious to some group of people. It's the uncertainty inherent in that kind of procedure that makes me ask if you can consider some limitations on this doctrine that would prevent my concern from becoming real. I think as long as we have questions of fact involved in scientific inquiries like this, we're going to have that problem. Um, which, which brings me to the jury question issue, really, because I think that was another concern that my, my colleague had. Our position. Well, I, I thought you agreed a moment ago that there would, needn't be decided in this case and wasn't even included in the question presented. Well, the word jury was in the 
was in the question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that's enough. Well, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I would just state, though, that I think Markman draws the line between what is for the court and what is for the jury. On one side of the line, we have claim construction, clearly for the judge. On the other side of the line, we have infringement, clearly for the jury. But Mr. Schmidt, isn't it true that in fashioning relief in an infringement case, once the, there's a determination, whether by the judge or jury, that there's been infringement, normally the judge will have to enter an injunction. And won't, won't he then, he or she then, have to face up to the problem of what is the bound, permissible boundary line which the infringer may no longer cross? Yes, and this is a control that the judge could exercise over just how far the doctrine of equivalence can go in fashioning his, his or her. So before the case is over, the judge is going to have to perform that task? Yes. Ipsen. Well, do you think the judge can perform that task simply de novo when he comes to considering the injunction? If, in fact, say a jury has found uh, a particular way, the judge could say, well, since this is equitable, I'm going to kind of disregard that finding of fact? I, I don't think the judge can do that. But I think like what happened in this particular case, where the jury came back with a finding implied that a pH of 5 was an infringement and the judge took the limit all the way down to 2, he is going beyond what, what the jury did. But I don't think he can ignore a factual finding by the jury. Um, in, in Markman, um, the line that was drawn was between the construction of the instrument and the character of the thing invented. And this court quoted from the Bischoff case back in 1869. On one hand, we have construction of the instrument. The character of the invention is really the heart of the invention, as you stated in Markman. How it functions, how, how the way in which it does it, the result that it gets. That's the distinction that's being made. In Royal Typewriter, which was um, talked about in the Graver case, Judge Learned Hand said that a patent is like any other legal instrument, but it's peculiar in this that after all aids to interpretation have been exhausted, and the scope of the claims has been enlarged as far as the words can be stretched. On proper occasions, court may make them cover more than their meaning will bear, for at times they resort to the doctrine of equivalence. That's, the, and that's what distinguishes, I think, between judge and between jury. The doctrine of equivalence, I submit, I think is more vital today than it's ever been. There was a time when an inventor could go out in the barn and cobble up an invention. Today it requires so much expense and so much risk by companies, particularly in the biotechnology area, to come up with inventions that they need the protection that the doctrine of equivalence uh, affords. And I urge this court to affirm the Federal Circuit, who sees these cases every day. May I see just one last question? Uh, we talked earlier about culpability being relevant. Yes. What about designing around a patent? Is that a plus or a minus? It's a factor to be considered. Uh, and, and which way does it cut is what I'm asking. <laughs> what the Federal Circuit teaches us, as implied from Graver, that if a patentee, or if an accused infringer makes an attempt to design around the patent, there is an inference to be drawn by the trier of fact that they have attempted to incorporate substantial changes. It's merely an inference. So it's merely one factor that could be considered in the whole... And I'm still not quite clear whether he's saying it's a plus or a minus. Is it a, is it a factor that favors the infringer or favors the patentee? It favors the infringer if yeah. they make the attempt to design around. And that's, that's clear from the Fifth Circuit model instruction. The Fifth Circuit has approved a model instruction on infringement, and it does say that designing around is a factor 
in favor of the alleged infringer, just as copying is a, is a factor in favor of the patentee. That's, that's true. That's true. I didn't mean to imply from culpability that the subjective intent of the infringer should be a factor. This is an objective test. And whether or not the infringer intended to infringe or did not intend to infringe is, ir is irrelevant, uh, as I think Kalani Oil teaches. The irony is he tries to get something that's commercially useful and as close to the patent as is lawful. The net's designing around in a way, and in another way it's, it's copying. I mean, the it, it, line between the two is kind of fuzzy. And what the infringer must do then is to, is to make substantial changes, which I think benefits everybody, because now instead of little incremental changes, you have big changes in technology, and I think that benefits everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Schmidt. Mr. Toronto, you have two minutes remaining. If I can make a couple of quick points. The estoppel point, I think, at, set out at page 28 and 29 of our petition is, I think, widely recognized as the single most important limit in defining the scope of the doctrine of equivalence. But it really wasn't in the questions presented. I mean, that's the, that's the major problem I have with that issue. Well, I, I guess I, I, we intended it to be in, in, this, in the question presented. The question presented said whether infringement should always be available based on a mere finding of substantial difference. We said no, and the first, the primary limit we suggested was prosecution history estoppel as part of 28 and 29. This, this is in your petition? Yes, on pages 28 you, and 29. Even though the accused product or process is outside the literal scope of the claim, I don't see where it refers to prosecution history. Right. It, it, it did not use that label. Prosecution history estoppel comes up only when you have a defendant's product that is outside the literal terms of the patent. Otherwise, there's nothing to a stop. Otherwise, you have literal infringement. So it is, in every text, the essential limit on in defining the scope of the doctrine of equivalence. The important thing that has happened now to the doctrine of equivalence is that it has become the rule rather than the exception. What that means is that under a substantial differences standard, um, other inventors who often do make important incremental changes working in the same field don't know where the boundaries are that they can that they can work. And here a boundary was set at six. The examiner explicitly at page 107, referring to, one, to page 22 of the joint appendix, said the reason is that's all that's enabled in the specification, exactly as in as in. Uh, um, the, in, in all of this court's um, prior cases. Like but there's, there's no disagreement on the estoppel history question as in the abstract. The way you assert it's presented here, both sides agree there's such a and no, no, estoppel I, I, history. They, they just just disagree as to whether such estoppel occurred here. No, no, I don't think so. I think there are two fundamental legal disagreements. The Federal Circuit said we re-examine the reason, and then it said we discount all reasons except prior art. Those are legally incorrect, and if we change those and say the reason doesn't matter, there was a demand, and second, that even if you do look at the reason, invalidity for overbreadth is no worse than prior art. We Thank can. you, Mr. Toronto. The case is submitted.